to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. Today, we have Mario on the show, and Mario is also known as the tax guy. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about all things U.S. taxes. Welcome to the show, Mario. Hello, hello. An exciting day, U.S. taxes. <laughs> maybe, more exci- <laughs> maybe more exciting for us as accountants. I know. The- you know. To be honest, it's funny though. You know, you, you'll be, you could be almost anywhere though, because taxes hit everybody. Where you know, for some reason, everybody wants to talk to you at the cocktail party because they think you have some some. The secret sauce to, to fixing everyone's tax problem. So, so it is kind of interesting. Absolutely. So let's start with a little bit about you, who you are, and your background, which has taken you to where you are now. Sure. So um, obviously, so I'm a U.S.-based uh, CPA. I have a small firm in Connecticut uh, called Greenhouse Reardon Company. Um, we have ten people, so me and one other partner, and then. Um, eight other staff, um, most of which are CPAs. Um, and, you know, we help clients all around the world um, with their, pretty much their U.S. tax problems. Um, so whether it be um, structuring new business, um, buying an existing business, um, selling a business, um, you know, or even just uh, tricky um, individual tax uh, questions. So yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, been at it for, for a while now, probably about 10 years and, um, that's about it. Before we get into the, the taxes side of things, I know a lot of the listeners of this show are business owners themselves or wanting to become business owners. And I always find it interesting to hear a little bit of the backstory. So how did you become a partner in this firm? Um, well, so I started actually at one of the the big four firms, which, um, you know, there, there's really no end in sight there. Um, you know, just wasn't really feel like I, feeling like I was helping anybody. Uh, you know, I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial since I was, I don't know, in high school. You know, uh, I was around when those the CD burners used to come out. You know, I would burn CDs and sell them in high school and I would buy shirts on eBay in bulk and resell them on eBay. Uh, so I was always doing something. And when this opportunity came up, I, you know, I said to the, the person, uh, the partner at the time, I said, well, eventually I'd like to become partner. And he said, well, you know, you'd have to really build your own business within this business and you have the opportunity to do that. And I said, all right, well, then sign me up. Um, so that's when I left the big firm to go to this firm. And um Pretty much, it's. I did exactly that. Um, I actually, I made partner at. God, I don't remember. I think it was age twenty-seven, um, which was the youngest in firm history. So that was a good accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. I I remember back in my accounting days, I worked at a firm called BDO. It wasn't big four, but it was yeah, a large. There you go. Yeah, and that path to partnership it was a long road, and mm. twenty-seven. That's a, a great achievement. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was interesting, but yeah, it was. It's been great though, you know. Um, it's nice because you know you choose your destiny. You know, I can take on more clients if I'd like, 
I could fire some clients if I'd like, uh, or, you know, I could hire more staff, you know, I could grow or I could fire some staff and say, well, you know what, this is enough income for me. I'll keep these clients and uh, get rid of the rest. You know, it, It's just nice to control what you would like to do and work with who you want to work with. Gives you more options to follow the path that, that you want. All right. Absolutely. We'll get into the first topic that we're going to be discussing today is sales tax. And there's been some recent changes in sales tax, which I know have created some uncertainty and a lot of questions. Before we jump into the changes, could you just describe to our listeners, especially those that might not be overly familiar with sales tax, a little bit about what it is, who it applies to, and the basics of what they need to know? So sales tax, right? So um, I guess very basically, you know, if you walk into any store and if you buy any tangible personal property, so whether that be a mug or a lamp, um, you know, usually there's a sales tax charge for that. And then the state, you know, the, the, um, the business is required to collect that tax and then remit it over to the state, um, every either month or quarter or year, depending on, you know, usually quantity of sales. So, you know, the first requirement that you would have to have to be subject or I guess to be required to charge sales tax is this concept of nexus. So you have to have a connection to a specific state um, to be required to charge sales tax. So, you know, what, what is this connection, you know, that I speak of? So the connection can be a physical presence. Um, so, you know, not very long ago, you used to have some sort of physical presence in a state for them to require you to charge your customer sales tax. So that could be through an employee, through ownership of property, um, having an office. Um, those are usually the things that would you know, give you a nexus in a state. Um, so, you know, for a lot of our online sellers, you know, this was a great thing. You know, you, you didn't have to deal with much sales tax because you would only have to deal with sales tax in the state where, you know, you and your team were located. Um, and you know, many times your team was, would be subcontractors and those wouldn't even count. So it would really just be where your home state was. You would have to handle sales tax. Now that's kind of, um, flipped around, I guess, let's say. Now, being an online seller is, is almost worse for sales tax purposes because um, just very recently, uh, there was a Supreme Court decision in the United States. Uh, you could Google around the Wayfair case, Wayfair decision, Wayfair sales tax. Um, so what ended up happening was, it was either North Dakota or South Dakota said, um, well, you have X number of sales in our state. Now, in their case, it was $200,000 or 100 transactions, or it could be vice versa. It's either $100,000 and 200 transactions, but either way, they had a minimum threshold of sales, but they had zero physical presence in that state. The Supreme Court said, well, guess what? By having just a number of sales in this state, you now have nexus and are required to charge sales tax. So now every state is following suit. Um, Not every state has done it yet, but um, I'm sure they will. So all states are pretty much just just giving a minimum threshold. 
of saying, well, if you have X number of sales or X dollar of sales, you now have to charge sales tax. So what does that mean? You say, well, what's the big deal, right? I'm, you know, the, the actual, the company, the seller doesn't have to pay the tax. You know, you just need to charge your customer. So in the end, you're actually paying no extra tax at all. The real problem is just compliance. Um, having to file reports in potentially 50 states and different rates in different localities in each state just turns into a complete headache. It's really, that's what the problem is. The problem is not charging the tax or, you know, it doesn't really cost anybody any money. You know, customers usually can care less about paying an extra 6% sales tax. It's just the matter of, well, now I've got to collect all this money and then somehow give it out to all these states and collect the correct amount. And that's really where the issue is. And do you have any tips for particularly these online sellers who are selling in multiple different states around how yeah. they can manage that compliance side? So, so step one is, is really just starting to track your sales by state and being aware of these thresholds. You know? So if you're starting to hit $200,000 in sales in a specific state, it's, it's time to start looking at what you should do for sales tax. Um, so there are services out there. Um, one is called TaxJar. Another is called Avatax. Um, those are really the only two games in town right now. And, you know, in the end, they, they have different levels of service. You know, some, some of them, they will handle everything, supposedly. Others, you know, you can use their software, which is supposed to integrate into your system and make it easier for you to handle on your own. Um, you know, in reality, it's just a burden that has to be handled. Now, the other, you know, others just take a risk approach. You know, they say, well, I may be just barely over the threshold in these three states, but I'm definitely over the threshold in California, which happens to be an extremely aggressive state. So, well, I'll comply with California and they make a, you know, their own business decision, um, you know, to pass at least for now on other states. Um, but like I said, step one is just having a way to track your sales by state, assessing your risk, because like, like I was saying, it's not your tax to pay, it's just your tax to charge. So, you know, the downfall being if you were supposed to charge it, and if you go on 10 years not charging it, well, they're still going to ask you for it if, you, if it were to, you know, come up by any particular state. Yes, that would not be a good position to be in if you no. had to be charging it for 10 years. Exactly. And that's the other problem is, again, if, you've, if you haven't filed anything, the statute of limitations never begins and they could go back basically as far as they want. Um, so, again, another good rule of thumb is always maintain your data because how these sales tax audits work is, uh, you know, a state would audit you and they'd say, okay, I see that you have $10 million of sales. We're going to assume they're all to my state unless you can prove otherwise. Right. So, so always maintain your sales by state. So then you can say, well, 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 you know, 
I see I have 10 million in sales, but really only 200,000 were to your state. And, you know, the rest were amongst all these other 50 states. So, you know, if you can't prove that data, you're, you're sitting in a hot seat. We've, in the next part of the podcast, we're going to be talking about some different case studies. Before we move into that, are there any final tips you wanted to mention about sales tax or any common questions that your clients ask you about sales tax? Um, I mean, I think we covered it pretty good. It's just, uh, um, it's really just stay on top of the thresholds that are ever changing right now. Um, and, you know, see when you start hitting the certain thresholds. And then in the end, it's just comply or, you know, pray that uh, the government does something about it. Yes. Excellent. I've been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, well, we'll move into the first case study. And th- these are not based on being in his clients or any particular clients. I've just thought about the types of clients that we work with and the com- and then the idea is to lead into common tax questions that may come up. Sure. The first one is a, it's an entrepreneur. They're based out of San Francisco. They're selling on Amazon. At the moment, they're not selling on their, their own platform, but they intend to in the future. And really, they're just getting started. So they've they've opened some bank accounts and, and really they've found their product to sell. They've just got started on Amazon and that's about it. Where would you start with them and what would your advice be to them? So in the end, just starting, in my personal opinion, is simpler is always better, right? Um, so what I would probably recommend to them is... They start their single member LLC, um, or if it's two partners, you make it a partnership LLC. Um, from there, you know, obviously is getting your accounting system up. You know, so you'd probably call Merrill at B Ninjas, right? Little plug. <laughs> no, but but really though, um, you know, you have to get an accounting system in place. You know, if you're an Amazon seller, it's really just knowing your inventory. Um, and from there, right, it's like, well, the classic question I get is, you know, how do I save taxes? How do I save taxes? How do I save taxes? Well, in truth, when you're starting out, the best way to save taxes is having, it's really good bookkeeping and good processes. So what I mean by that is um, good processes are, okay, I have my business bank account. And I've got one business credit card or two business credit cards, however many you have, one or two, you know, don't go crazy and have a hundred. All of my business expenses are on these cards or this bank account. And all my business income comes in that business bank account. You know, I don't have 14 personal cards saying, oh yeah, you know, at the end of the year, I'm going to remember that I paid for that with my personal card. I'm going to somehow sift through my 40 personal transactions and pick that deduction out. It just doesn't happen because guess what? You're, you're running a business all day and you don't have two weeks to sift through 12 months of your personal bank statements and personal credit cards to find all the business transactions that you had on those cards. It just doesn't happen. So step one to saving taxes when you're starting are having those processes because just by the fact of having them in a single statement 
even if you don't use accounting software, at the end of the year, half of it is there done for you just with the statements. You know, you have, there's all your expenses and there's all your income. Now you just need to categorize it. Um, and almost anybody can help you do that. You know, and then eventually once you start growing a little bit, you can then start utilizing these accounting softwares like Zero or QuickBooks Online that'll suck in all these transactions and again, help you balance things, reconcile things, and um, you know, really start giving you some kind of business intelligence to what your business looks like to run reports. Um, that's really step one for the guy that's just starting out, just has a, you know, just has a product. Um, my personal opinion, you, you get those basics done of having those separate, that separation and start worrying about sales first, you know, and then a little bit down the line, then start saying, all right, now I got to get some really good accounting going on. Yep, great. And if we continue with this case study and we just move, there are a couple of years on now. So sales have really ramped up on Amazon. They've also created their own brand on Shopify. And now originally there was one business owner, but he's brought on a partner who's great at marketing to really help him grow the brand. Would there be any different considerations now that revenue is much higher? And there's Absolutely. a business partner. Absolutely. So, you know, at this point, right, is, is you're, you know, you're growing, um, again, being Amazon business inventory kind of being your, your big, um, uh, how would you explain it? You know, it's kind of your big cash flow problem is inventory. So once you hit a certain level, you really should get a good accounting system going. Um, so you know, well, in October or November, I better make my order so I have all of my inventory in by, you know, whenever in December that I need it because that's when I make most of my sales. And the only way you know when you make most of your sales is by looking at historical data in your accounting system. So sifting through bank statements is not enough at that point in time. You know, you want to be able to run reports on certain times of the year where, to see where your sales are. Also to see where your cash position is, right? Because, you know, just because you have a lot of sales in November, December, doesn't mean you have enough cash to buy the inventory you need to make those sales, which might mean months in advance, you might have to say, all right, you know, we got to find a credit facility. You know, how are we going to buy all the inventory we are projecting to need? Well, we may need to start applying for loans and lines of credit. Um, and once you hit that level, you know, sending your Excel spreadsheet to the bank, it's just not really. It's not gonna, a good look. Yeah. You know, it, it's just not going to work. So you need the accounting system at that point in time. Um, and then, of course, it comes to tax savings. You know, everybody, you know, nobody wants to pay taxes. Nobody wants to pay taxes. So, um, you know, on the bright side, under the new Trump law, the uh, the tax rates have went way down, especially for business owners. Um, a lot of my Amazon businesses are considering C-Corps now, even, you know, they used to never consider these in the past, just because the rate there is 21% flat. So again, a, a business where a lot of your money is tied in inventory, that rate is pretty attractive. Um, 
But really, what most are still sticking to is um, pass-through entities, uh, mostly an S-Corp um, that is going to qualify now for what's called QBI or Qualified Business Income Deduction. Um, I just get you just to go back and just explain with an S-Corp what you mean by the pass-through. Sure. So, 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 yeah, so there's two ways your business entity will essentially be taxed. So one is the corporate form, so C-corporate form, which is basically saying, okay, our entity is being taxed one time flat at 21%. Done. Now, but all that money is still sitting in the corporation. So to get that money to the interested people, so to the shareholders, there's really only two ways to get it there. One is through payroll, which would be a deduction to the company, and then it would then reduce you know, the tax burden of the company. But of course, now you have a tax burden at the personal level. Or the second way is you pay a dividend, which would not be a deduction to the company. So you would end up paying the 21% rate plus the dividend rate on the, at the personal level. So, you know, just to talk a little bit about rates, you know, so you'd be paying 21% at corporate plus the dividend rate is anywhere between 15 and 23.8%. So, um, Again, generally speaking, you know, it's a little bit different between married and, and uh, single, but pretty much zero to about 200 to 250,000 in personal income, that dividend will be 15%. From, uh, from about, two, about 200 to 250 to about 600, um, it will be at 18.3%. And then basically 23.8% thereafter. Um, that's kind of a mishmash of both single and, and individual and uh, married rates. But, you know, you could Google rate tables and just get the idea of, of exactly how that works. Um, but then, you know, the other way you're taxed is really having a pass-through entity is what they're called, which is pretty much, you know, you could have either an S-corporation or an LLC taxed as a partnership where all of the income of the company, instead of being taxed at the company level, is just taxed at the personal level. So all the income passes through to the personal level, you know, whether or not you take it out of the company, you pay the tax personally, and then you're free to draw it out of the company whenever you'd like. So there is no taxable event for you actually taking cash out like the dividend at the corporate structure but you're paying all at ordinary income rates, which range from, you know, from 10% to 37%. So purely on the rate differential, um, you know, getting the money to the owner will almost always be cheaper with a pass-through entity. Um, but if you're accumulating profits for a long period of time at a low 21% rate, there are times where that C-Corp structure is beneficial. So the answer to, you know, the answer to every accounting question is it depends, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, the vast majority will be using pass-through entity structures, um, even with the Amazon businesses, just because, you know, the total tax to get to the shareholder is the cheapest. Um, which is, you know, ulti- I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? I mean, why else are we in business here? Yeah, exactly. And so on this same case study, 
would there be any implications around bringing an additional business partner on once the business has the business has already been operating for a couple of years at this point? Right. So, I mean, there's a bunch of ways that that gets done. Um, so, you know, they can buy in, right? So they could buy a percentage interest in the existing company. Um, you know, you could grant them a profit interest in the future profits of the company. Um, I mean, there, there's a multitude of ways to do that. Uh, usually that, that leads to more, um, you know, put it this way, there's always a way we could fit it in the tax, uh, the tax box, right? Where nobody will have a taxable event there unless, of course, the seller, you know, is selling a portion of that business. Uh, but if you're just going to grant somebody a partnership interest, there's always a way to make that uh, non-taxable on both sides. And, you know, but the, the things you have to think about are, you know, just like with any business partner, you know, is, um, you know, what is everybody's responsibilities? What, what does everybody expect out of each other? And, you know, ultimately, if we were to separate this thing, uh, who would get what? So, you know, a lot of that goes through the legal process, which in those cases, in my opinion, is even more important than the tax side. You know, we could almost always make the tax side work. And I'll speak from my own experience here, having been through a business partnership that has ended, it was really important having that documentation and agreement up front about what it would look like if the partnership ended. And we actually have a separate podcast that one of the early episodes that, that talks through my experience with Ben with with that business partnership ending. Yeah. Let's move into the second case study. And this time it's a coach. So they're a they're a health coach. They have a team in the Philippines. They're a digital nomad, so they're they're traveling around the world. They still spend part of the year in America and they're still paying taxes there. What would be would there be any different tax implications or things to consider for this coach? So if they're outside of the country long enough um, uh, on the U.S. side, they can qualify for something called the foreign earned income exclusion. So there, there's two ways you qualify for that. You could either be a bona fide resident of a specific country, which truly means that you actually live in, you know, Australia, for instance. You know, hey, you know, you have a long term lease, you have a visa. You know, you still come back to the U.S. and visit family and, and whatnot, but you truly live there. You, you know, that's where all of your contacts are. Um, you know, you're not making every few months a visa run because, you know, if not, you're there illegally. Um, then you would qualify for the foreign income exclusion as a bona fide resident. resident. But there is also the substantial presence test, which many of my clients qualify for. So if you're out of the country for... 330 of a 365-day period, um, then, again, you would qualify for this exclusion. So what this does is it really gives you $100,000. Well, it's about $103,000 that is excluded from income, which is great. I mean, you, you can pretty much have you know, all that money. Or your business can earn that money and then be excluded. Now, there's a few different things that happen, though. Um, for one, if your company has a lot of expenses, you know, if, for instance, if it had inventory or, uh, well, not even inventory, but just, just had a lot of business expenses, 
um, you know, so if you had say 300,000 in, in gross sales and 200,000 in expenses, you know, there's a scale back of those expenses reducing your exclusion. So what we usually recommend to those clients is an S corporation because then they could very clearly, um, you know, they could have their 200,000 in expenses, you know, 300,000 gross, 200,000 expenses, pay themselves a hundred thousand dollars salary, and then not have to worry about those nasty scale back rules. Um, but yeah, being outside of the U S as a consultant, um, or, you know, just being outside of the U S in general and to qualify for this is, is a great, um, opportunity. And, you know, I have many clients that are married couples outside of the United States that are excluding $200,000, which is only thing better than 100 is 200, right? <laughs> you can see uh-huh. it's a pretty good life in some of the, especially somewhere like Southeast Asia. Right. That kind of money. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so that's really the benefit of, of the nomad, um, you know, going country to country and a lot really kind of plan their trips around, you know, those 330 out of 365 days. You know, the one thing I should also mention is it's any 365 day period. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, January to December. So if you go June to June, right, as a 365 day period, you'd actually qualify in both years for 50,000 each year. Um, so, you know, there is opportunities there that a lot of people don't realize um, that are there. And could you just quickly explain what you meant by the scale back rules around the extent so, so scale So scale back meaning, um, like I was saying, if, if you have a lot, I guess, let me use two examples. If you're a consultant, right, and, you know, you're outside of the United States and you literally have just, just $100,000 of, um, of, consulting revenue, you have no expenses. That's it. That, that, you know, all you do is hop on Skype and talk to people and charge them and you made a hundred grand. Great. That, that's awesome that you have no expenses and you'd qualify for the full amount of the exclusion. But if you, um, you know, if you had say $500,000 of gross income, but you have um, a team of 10 people that you paid $400,000 um, and then, which still nets to the same 100000 in income to yourself, you may lose some of that $400,000 deduction. So it'll get scaled back by, uh, honestly, I don't even know how much off the top of my head, but just your deductions end up reducing the amount of the 400 income exclusion you get. So in that case, that's why we say, well, we could just kind of, you know, go kind of around that by forming the S corporation and paying yourself the hundred thousand dollar salary. So then you can utilize the full hundred thousand dollar exclusion amount. Great. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. On to case study number three, and this is back in the U S. So this is a digital agency that is based, we'll say Tucson, which is where the Beanages office is in mm-hmm. the U S. So it's a digital agency. They're turning over, around a million dollars a year. There's two partners or two founders of the business and they also have a team that are based in that same office. So they're US employees and some US contractors. What would your tax tips or consider tax considerations be for a business like that? 
Okay. So almost every business, and I think I started talking about this with the Amazon business, is um, it was kind of given a gift with these pass-through entities under the new law called qualified business income. Um, so what that is, is any pass-through entity qualifies for this. So whether that's a single member LLC, an LLC partnership, um, even if it's just a state law partnership or an S corporation, um, what this new law did was it said, well, if you have, let's say a million dollars in profit, you're now allowed to deduct 20% of that. So nice. That's a pretty sweet $200,000 deduction. You're only taxed on 800,000. So that was like, you know, wow, that's great. You know, so it, it really lowered the tax rate to the small business owner. But with that, there was a lot of limitations. So one of them being um, once you hit a certain threshold of income. So that threshold is as a married couple is 315,000. It is uh, whatever half of that is for a single person. I think it's that 157-ish thousand. Once you hit this threshold is when all the limitations come in. So basically if you're under 300 in profit as a married couple, don't even have to think about the limitations. So now these guys, so you're at a million in profit, so you have to start thinking about it. So at a million in profit, the first limitation is you're only allowed to deduct, again, 20% now or 50% of the wages that you pay your employees. So you say, okay, well, if you have no employees, you get no benefit, right? You would have gotten $200,000 based on the million in profit, but because you have no employees, you get zero. So what do you do? Well, one is if you have contractors, you may want to consider hiring them as employees. And the logical next step is hire yourself and pay yourself a wage. So it turns into just a math problem, right? Where it's okay if I pay myself X, right? And then there's 50% of that. And then that'll lower my profit um, by this much. And then you kind of hit this magic number of how much do I need to pay myself to maximize this 20% deduction? So what we're doing right now, you know, November, December is really looking at where all of our clients profitability is right now and saying, okay, do we need to pay any bonuses to maximize this deduction? So that's been huge tax savings for tons and tons and tons of our clients. Now the next limitation, which unfortunately there's you know, no way around it is once you're above these thresholds, um, again, 160 or 157 and 315, if you're what they consider a specified service business, then no matter how much you have in, in wages to your employees, you just don't qualify anymore. Um, so that phases out between 315 and 415 for married and 157 and probably around 200 and change for, um, for single. So, of course, the, the question is, what's a specified service business? So those are lawyers, accountants. Um, let's see. Uh, what, what else were specified service? Um, financial advisors, um, you know, anything service related, you kind of have to, uh, review 
what their specifics are. Consultants, you know, they say, and then there's a big long definition of what a consultant really is. Um, but you know, you'd be surprised that more more businesses qualify that I thought wouldn't after regulations came out, but they're still kind of working that piece out. Um, on the bright side, all the Amazon guys, those, those definitely qualify, which is great. Um, but that has saved some of our clients. I mean, in the millions of dollars in taxes. Wow. And actually that's a really nice segue into tax planning. What you've talked about there is one element of tax planning with it coming up to the end of the financial year in the U.S., do you have any other general tax planning tips that may help businesses not pay or and individuals not pay too much tax? Sure. I mean, so what we do this time of year, just like you said, coming up to the end of the year, is we really do two things, right? Is uh, Number one is we've got a good picture of what the year looks like so far, right? So for one, you need to figure out, well, how much am I going to owe come April? Because, you know, eventually you got to write that check. So that that's usually step one around now is saying, you know, now you've at least got time from December into April to save that money and set it aside for the good old tax man. And then, like you said, the other thing we do around this time of year is saying, well, what else can we do to reduce taxes? Of course. Um, you know, the one thing, the classic is of course, spend. You know, you can always spend money to reduce taxes. Um, so, you know, that's the obvious, but that doesn't get any more money in your pocket to send your kids to college. Um, but what we usually do around this time of year is say, well, this year is either, you know, if it's an outlier year, you know, should we, is this a good year to buy the big, uh, you know, upgrade the computer system, right? Or to, buy the new um, truck for the business or is it, well, you know, this year is just kind of a little less actually profit than the prior year. So why don't we save that deduction for the next year? Um, Or, you know, Hey, we have, uh, you know, we're very close to these thresholds for this QBI deduction. I was just talking about, you know, if you were to accelerate some expenses right now, you would fall in that sweet spot and, you know, you'll be under that $315,000. And that's very valuable um, in those contexts. Same thing with like retirement plans. Is this a good year to put money in a retirement plan or not? Um, again, it, a lot right now is is focusing around this 20% deduction of saying, well, you know, right now you're at $350,000 in, in income. You know, if you could set aside thirty five grand and throw it into a retirement account, your marginal benefit, you know, the, the taxes saved by getting into that 20% deduction range have, have been huge on some uh, calculations where it's a no-brainer to, to do things like that, like put things in retirement funds, even though, again, I'm not a huge advocate of, uh, of qualified accounts by any means. But uh, when, when the savings are around 40% to 45%, I mean, it, it's... Uh, it's worth it. Fantastic. Also, also, you know, of course, is evaluating your structure. Um, again, back to, you know, everything seems to be always come back to this 20% QBI deduction lately is around now is when we tell our clients to say, you know, Hey, the S corp may be worth it for you next year. Um, 
you know, usually we try not to change people mid-year um, just because it turns into kind of an accounting nightmare. But, um, you know, this is when we do the calculations to say, well, this is how much you'll save as an S-Corp next year. Do you want to do it? You know, because usually there's added filing requirements and some 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 kind of out-of-the-box downsides that, that a lot of people don't consider before jumping into it. Changing structure. But Correct. Also- yeah. yeah, so exactly. I mean, this is the perfect time of year to say, hey, do we want to consider changing our structure? Because, you know, whenever anyone's changing structure just for tax reduction versus requirement for some other reason, I always advise January 1st. You know, why do, you know, the few months of savings is not going to be worth the accounting headache, you know, unless your company's big enough that has its own back-end accounting department. Um, you know, losing out in three months of, you know, tax benefits, in my opinion, is not a big deal. You know, I'd rather just have a clean cutoff, start January 1 and go from there. And changing structure, or well, 1st of January is actually, while, while you're having those conversations, we're having the conversations at being just that it's the perfect time to change accounting software. So if you, exactly. whether you have or haven't changed structure, if you're not using zero or you're not using cloud-based accounting software, then it's the right time in November, December to start planning for that transition too. So whether it's tax structure or the accounting platform that you're accounting, using. payroll, everything. Yeah, it's a great time to start planning those things ready for the beginning of the, the new financial year. Mario, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here, sharing your knowledge about taxes in the US. Did you have any final words that you wanted to share or final tips before we wrap up? Um, gosh, nothing I could really think of, but um, you know, accounting is it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on who you talk to. Yeah, right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, Meryl, you have a good one.